We are in the middle of a series called The King is Like, looking at some of the parables out of Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus uh, gives us a picture of what uh, the kingdom of God looks like, the righteous and redemptive rule of Jesus looks like in our lives. And so we've been working our way through some of these parables, and so far we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is the righteous and redemptive rule of Jesus. So it's not a cage that he drops around us or a rigid set of rules that he gives us, but he's trying to rescue and redeem us from sin and from ourselves and setting ourselves on a path of righteousness to live lives that would bend knees to him as our king and honor him and live with, with, with a sense of, of obedience to Jesus. It's the one thing we saw last week that's worth losing everything for. It's the one thing that we give up everything behind us to take hold of this one thing that's in front of us because it's of infinite value. Is more valuable than anything that we could have trusted in or treasured before we met Jesus. In addition, we've seen that, it, that, that the kingdom of God is expansive. It's invading every corner of the world and it's also invasive. It's invading every corner of our souls. It's working its way through our lives in every nook and cranny of our souls and of our hearts. This morning we come to a text in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus kind of sets out the course of the parables here. In Matthew chapter 13 verses 1 to 9. Um, he tells the parable of the sower. And then in verses uh, 18 through 23, we have a window into Jesus' own interpretation of this parable. So we're not guessing in the dark about what he means by what he says. And so in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to pick up in verse 1, read down through verse 9. Then we'll jump to verse 18 and we'll read through verse 23 together. So if you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen for you as we read. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 1, Jesus, the text says, That same day... Jesus went out of that, the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many par- things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some feed, seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. Then down in verse 18, Jesus says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the words, word of the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Then in verse 23, Jesus says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, I don't know how many, how many of you are familiar with J.R.R. R. Tolkien, one of the great um, uh, authors of uh, the last century. 
Um, but he wrote a, a, a series of books, um, The Hobbit, and he wrote The Lord of the Rings, and some of those books have now been made into major cinematic productions. Uh, but in J.R.R. Tolkien's conception of what he called Middle Earth, the arena in which the hobbits lived uh, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, there were some other creatures that lived in that Middle Earth realm as well. And they was, these creatures were called the Ents. Anybody familiar with the Ents? If you've read the books or maybe if you've seen the movies, the Ents were these massive tree-like creatures. They kind of look like this, at least in the cinematic production of them. There were these massive tree-like creatures uh, that, would, uh, that, that helped the hobbits in their quest to take the ring of power and destroy it in the fires of Mordor. Right? I'm talking really geeky right now for a lot of you. Uh, but just follow me for a moment. But these ants are massive trees that lived amongst the forest and amongst the other trees. And on their quest, they began to help the hobbits destroy this ring of power. When we think of when you see when you see the ants in the movie, they're these massive structures or creatures that are able to pick up boulders and crush houses. And they as they walk, right? There's there's this sense of which they, their feet pound the ground. And whenever you and I think of a kingdom breaking into human history, or whenever you and I think of a kingdom invading a particular space, we typically tend to think of ints, right? Something big, something flashy, something showy, something that comes with all kinds of mass and power. But whenever Jesus speaks of the kingdom breaking into human history, the very first parable off of his lips to describe how the kingdom invades and how the kingdom lays siege to it's the ground that it takes is not these massive ant-type creatures who are full-grown trees who uproot and move throughout this kingdom. But what he speaks of are not the ants, but of seeds. He speaks of seeds. He speaks of his farmer that goes out and he has a bag or a little satchel on his side of seed and as he walks down the paths of the fields, he's broadcasting it indiscriminately. In other words, he doesn't really know exactly where it's going to fall because the wind might take some and blow it different places. So he's not walking and just kind of setting one seed down and another seed down. Before This is before the days of big John Deere tractors with GPS coordinates that could set seed exactly where you wanted it to fall. He's just broadcasting it in the field. And Jesus says the kingdom is like that. When my kingdom breaks into human history, Jesus says, I've shown up and begun to proclaim the message of God to the peoples around me. And it's like seed. The word is like seed that's going out and being scattered indiscriminately amongst all kinds of people in all kinds of places. So Jesus says it's not, it doesn't show up with a lot of fireworks, it doesn't show up with a lot of fanfare, it doesn't show up with a lot of, 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 of boasting, it shows up like a small seed that falls into the hearts of people. This is what Jesus compares the kingdom to. And so the question before us this morning that I think Jesus is driving at in this particular parable is this. Why do some people respond to the message of Jesus' righteous and redemptive rule in their lives? Why do they f flee to Jesus and others flee from him? 
Why do some take steps in his direction to cross the line of faith and come in as citizens of his kingdom and allow his righteous and redemptive rule to dictate and direct and lovingly lead and guide their lives while others push back in resistance from that and they want to fire shots across the border at him as opposed to coming under his wings for shelter and refuge? Why is it that some respond to his message and others do not? And I think what Jesus is driving at here in the text, and the first thing that we need to see from this parable is this, that the reason that there are some, some of your friends, right, have responded to Jesus, and they may be here at Redeemer or at other churches, some of your family members have pushed back against Jesus, and they've resisted him, and they've run from him. Some of you may be running from him right now, but you know what he's doing? He's running toward you to embrace you. But why is it that there are alternate responses like that? And the text tells us this, Jesus tells us this in this parable, that it largely depends whether a person responds to Jesus or doesn't respond to Jesus, or how they respond to Jesus. It largely depends on how they hear. On how they hear. Because what Jesus says in the text is that hearing, it happens in the heart. Hearing happens in the heart. Look in verse 9 at what Jesus says. After he tells the parable of the sower, he says, let he who has ears, some of your translations say it that way, my translation says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus is speaking to a a crowd of people. Remember, he's there by the sea, and there's so many people who are pressed around him that he had to retreat into a boat onto the water to have a platform upon which to teach. There's lots of people pressing around Jesus, and the assumption is that they all have ears, right? They all have these little cartilage appendages that protrude out from the sides of their skulls that have a little membrane inside of them that whenever sound or passes across that membrane, it rattles, and then it sends signals to the brain to process what they're hearing. But when Jesus says, let he who has ears, let him hear, The assumption is that some of the people to whom Jesus is speaking, they don't have the ears that Jesus is speaking about. Because Jesus isn't talking here about these cartilage appendages. He's he's referring to something similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians when Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart so they could see and appreciate and esteem the truth of God rightly. And when Jesus says, let he who has ears, he's saying, let he he who's hearing in his heart. Hearing in his heart, because that's where hearing happens. See, it is absolutely possible for you to see something and yet not see it. Or to hear something and yet not really hear it. Let me show show it to you this way. You ask any married couple who's sitting on the couch together on Saturday afternoon while their alma mater is playing football in October or November or December, right? Or the Cowboys are on on Sunday, any Saturday or Sunday afternoon and football's on the TV and you're both sitting on the couch together and the husband's eyes are glued to what's taking place as the game unfolds and the wife is over on her phone scrolling through looking at new furniture. And she's like, well, what do you think about this? And he says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Well, what do you think about this? Yeah, that's, that's great. But the whole time his eyes are fixated on the game and while there are sounds passing across that little membrane inside of his ear, it's not resonating for him. 
And whenever they're watching the game together, she might be looking up every once in a while and watch some of the plays that take place on the screen, but she doesn't have the same kind of appreciation for those incredibly athletic moves that the running back had to make when he hits the circle button and spins and goes around the defender and makes a beeline to the end zone running with 4-4 speed. She's like, oh, we scored. Right? She sees, but she doesn't see, or he hears, but he doesn't hear. Maybe you've had this experience before in your own life where you've maybe gone to an art exhibit or you've gone to a concert or you've sat in a symphony hall and it became very clear to you that where you were seated, or seated, there were so many people sitting around you that what was taking place with that orchestra on stage or with that band on stage in that local club right, was much more meaningful to the people around you than it was to you. Or maybe you've gone to an art gallery and you've seen sculptures and you've seen paintings and you've seen exhibits and the people you are with are just captivated by this piece of art that's before them. And you're like, man, that's a piece of rock. <laughs> and you just go on to the next one. Why? Are, what, because some people are seeing with more than these eyes and hearing with more than these ears. It's something that captivates them. It grabs a hold of them. That's the kind of ears Jesus is talking about. When he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Hearing happens in the heart. And then Jesus says there's at least four ways that you can hear with your heart. At least four ways. So let's line those out quickly this morning. The first way that Jesus says you can hear with your heart is that you can hear with a hard heart. You can hear with a hard heart. In verses 4 and 19, in both the parable and the interpretation, hear what Jesus says again. He says, And he's, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. It's verses 4 and 19 of Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says, There are some who hear with a hard heart, Kind of like the path that's been tread on and crushed down underneath the foot. So when the seed hits it, it bounces off of it and it has no place to set roots or to germinate. And Jesus says those seed that, that seed sits there on top of the path, oh, it's, what happens is the, he says the enemy comes and he likens it to birds that come and snatch up the seed and they devour it and they eat it. And that's, that the enemy would come and snatch away the seed because it doesn't, it doesn't land on them. It, doesn't make, it just kind of bounces off. See, one of the ways to know if you're hearing with a hard heart this morning, if you're hearing with a hard heart is this, is that Christianity for you over the course of your life has always been theoretical, but never really practical. In other words, it's always just been something that you've kind of maybe entertained with your mind, but it's never really actually penetrated your heart. See, if you're hearing with a hard heart this morning, or if you've been hearing with a hard heart over the course of your life, what happens is that the, the, the word of God goes out, whether it be through a preacher on a Sunday morning or whether it be through a Bible study that you attend on a Tuesday night or whether it be through a discussion that you have with a coworker or a friend and they bring the scripture to bear upon a particular situation in your life. And that word just bounces off because it's like theory, intellectual, cognitive assent maybe to something, to this understanding that maybe there is a God and maybe I'm accountable to him and maybe he has created me and maybe I've rebelled against him. All those truths of the, that lie at the heart of the gospel. But it just keeps bouncing off because it's always stayed in the theoretical for us. See, the word of God has never really grabbed you by the throat. 
You ever experience that? Maybe under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, whenever someone's preaching or whenever you're in a Bible study, when you're in a discussion, it's like all of a sudden the word just kind of, there's a hand that reaches out of the page as you're reading the Bible and it just kind of grabs you by the throat. And you're like, whoa. Or maybe like you've been asleep all of your life and all of a sudden there's somebody who, like, like, like the fairy tales, right? There's like this sleeping princess there and somebody comes along and kisses her and she wakes up. And she comes out of this trance and it's like you're waking up to the fact that the truth has your name on it. It's never really gripped you. It's never really grabbed you. It's always just kind of stayed here, floating right above your head. And it just keeps bouncing off and bouncing off and bouncing off and bouncing off. Has there ever been a time where it's gripped you or grabbed you and moved from theoretical into practical? Jesus says if there hasn't, there's a good bet that you're hearing with a hard heart. Another way that you can hear with a heart is you can hear with a shallow heart, Jesus says. In verses 5 and 6, and then in verses 20 and 21, Jesus says this. He says, Other seed fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately it sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus says, there are some who hear the word, but the word never really sets deep root in their lives. They kind of have an emotional encounter with Jesus. There's lots of, lots of kids as in my years of student ministry who had these kinds of encounters at camp or at retreats or revival services where there's a great deal of emotion that kind of wells up in the heart and they have that kind of white knuckle moment where they're holding the chair or the pew in front of them, right? Because they, they, they feel like they got to walk down the aisle. They don't want to walk down the aisle because they have to give up their pride. But maybe they eventually do, and there's all these wellsprings of emotions the last night at camp, and they have this great emotional experience, but it really never sets root deep within the heart. And so whenever hardship comes, whenever trials invade, right? Whenever persecution arises, whenever family members go, you believe in Jesus? You think, you think I'm a sinner too? No, no, no. Right, they begin to backpedal, kind of like a crawfish, right? Kind of backing out of their commitment. They never really were converted in the first place. There's a shallowness to their heart. It's kind of like cut flowers. Those of you gentlemen in the room who maybe have bought flowers for a particular young lady in your past or present, hopefully, some of you, um, bought flowers for them from Kroger, or maybe you grew them in your backyard if you were really, like, good, and you cut the stems off of those flowers, and you bring them in, and you buy the little plant food that you can pour into the water, the little miracle Grow stuff. You set the flowers in there, and they look beautiful and mesmerizing for about five days. And after about five days... Those petals begin to wilt just a little bit. And after about 10 days, they begin to fall off. And after about 15 days, they begin to turn, what's left begins to turn brown and crusty. Why? Because there's no root connected to them any longer to nourish them. And Jesus says, there are shallow hearts that are like cut flowers. They may bloom and blossom with all kinds of vibrancy for a season, but ultimately... There's nothing there to sustain them. 
Has that been your experience? Have you heard the word of God over the course of your life with a shallow heart? Have you experienced these real high emotions, but there's been really no real devotion in your life to undergird that and move it forward as you continue to follow Jesus and bend your knee to him as king? This is one of the reasons why all right, one of the reasons why in the early church they didn't like, wasn't like, hey man, you got saved the last night at camp, you come on the next Sunday morning, you get baptized. <laughs> right, in the early church, they wanted to test out and prove your conversion to see if there was really any root there underneath, to see if there really was anything that was going to sustain you for the long haul, or if it was just kind of an emotional wave that you had ridden. Has that been your experience? Maybe you've heard all of your life with a shallow heart and whenever tribulation or persecution arises, what you found is that you turned back. You turned back away from Jesus because what you were really worshiping was what you lost in the fire. And you turned back to it. The third way Jesus says you can hear with the heart is that you can hear with a crowded heart or a divided heart. In the, in the parable in verse 7, in the interpretation of verse 22, Jesus says, Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. See, there's some individuals, some people who hear the word of God, and maybe it, it falls in and it falls, but it falls among all these competing loyalties and allegiances in their life. And there's already weeds, there's already thorns that have grown up in their hearts so that, that the, when the seed falls, it may fall on soil that has the capacity to set deep roots. But there's so many other competing loyalties and allegiances in their life that they're trying to like share rule with Jesus as opposed to bending their knee to him fully and finally. They're trying to share rule with him. And the thorns, Jesus says, end up choking out. They begin, because they're competing for all the nutrients, right, of the soul. They begin to choke out the seed as it tries to set roots, and it can bear no fruit. See, one of the ways that you know if you're hearing with a divided heart, with a crowded heart, is that you, you end up ultimately yielding to the defense attorney who's in your soul. And we all have them, <laughs> I've got a whole firm of them in there, right? It's about seven of them that just keep defending me against everything that the Word of God has to say at times. And so whenever God's Word comes to us, right, there's all these little defense attorneys and they, I object, right? <laughs> You're not really as bad as, as the Word says you are. You don't really need to make progress in that area like the Word says that you should. And so we begin to push back and we begin to listen to those objections and we begin to use those objections and all kinds of excuses erupt in our souls for why why we're, we're actually okay even though the word says this we're, we're actually okay if we're doing the contrary because there's something else choking out its fruitfulness in our lives because at the end of the day like we said last week there's something else in your life that is your everything that's competing for this one thing so Jesus says you can hear with a hard heart, you can hear with a shallow heart, you can hear with a divided heart, but Jesus also says you can hear with a fertile heart. 
You can hear with a fertile heart. In verse 8 of the parable and verse 23 of the interpretation, Jesus says, Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty-fold. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. Now when we read the parable, most of us read the parable through these lenses of thinking, I've got a fertile heart. I know I do. I'm persuaded of the fact that I've got a... In fact, all the little defense attorneys in your cell are going, you've got a fertile heart. <laughs> and they're trying to persuade us of this. But there are some who are persuaded they have a fertile heart uh, because they intellectually affirm the Word of God. There are some who are persuaded they have a fertile heart because they emotionally respond to the Word of God. In other words, they get all excitable. And there are others who think they have a fertile heart because they are in constant contact with the Word of God. Even though there's other allegiances and loyalties that are choking out its fruit. Some think they have a fertile heart because they intellectually have all these categories in their mind. They love to argue with people about them. Some think they have a fertile heart because they have all these emotional experiences. And some think they have a fertile heart because they have a consistent contact with it. But listen, what Jesus says the marker of a fertile heart is, is that it bears fruit. Not that they have categories and can win arguments. Not that they have really high waves of emotional experiences. And not that they're in constant contact with it, but the marker of a fertile heart is that it bears fruit in the life and that it ultimately ends up changing the landscape of your life. Now listen, on several occasions, I've, I've been walking, like my wife and I live right back here in Wood Creek, that way. Um, in this neighborhood right back here, and there are hike and bike trails that run through the neighborhood. And on several occasions, I've kind of been walking along some of those trails with my kids. Um, and there's oak trees that kind of line, live oak trees that kind of line some of those trails. And they ultimately, but this, you know, every year they drop acorns out of those trees, don't they? And as those acorns fall, some of them fall, and they kind of maybe work their way up along under the edge of even some of those walking trails. They might get crushed down underneath there and they work their way up underneath. And I've seen on several occasions, I've been walking down some of those hike and bike trails and I've seen these little oak saplings that are right up underneath the edge of the concrete that have had such power in that little small acorn that they begin to push through and actually crack the concrete. And they begin to push up from it. They're like, I, you, you can't hold me down. <laughs> right? No matter how hard the cap is on top of it, it begins to push through and break through. And that is, that is true of those who have a fertile heart, that whenever the, the seed lands in their souls, when it lands in their lives, that no matter how hardened things have become, it begins to break through. That no matter how emotional of a roller coaster they've been on for the course of their life, it begins to set some stability in place. And no matter how much constant contact they believe they've had with surrounded by other competing loyalties and allegiances, it begins to choke those out as opposed to those choking it out. Jesus says the marker of a fruitful heart is not just your understanding, it's not just your emotions, and it's not just your constant contact, but it's that there's life change and fruit that is born out of that. So you can change. If you, if you rolled out to any of these uh, massive plots of land that lie around us that are just waiting for developers to come and buy, to any of these massive plots of land, you can change the landscape of a massive field by dropping a big boulder right in the middle of it, couldn't you? You could change the landscape 
But you would, you would, it would make a singular impression and there would be a singular spot where there's a massive rock sitting there in the middle of the field. But if you really wanted to change the landscape of that field, you would take a, a, a and it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? You would take a small acorn and you would plant it in the soil. And a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, 300 years from now, that field would be dotted with oak trees. Why? Because the seed continues to fall on fertile soil and it continues to bear fruit. That's what Jesus says is the marker of a fertile heart, that there's fruit. Is there fruit in your life? As I've I've prepared for this this week, I, I, I just came face to face with this in my own life. Jesus says, not only will there be fruit and there'll be a harvest, but he says, it'll be some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30-fold. Now listen, ancient Palestine was not Nebraska, okay? It was not the Midwest. There was not all this nutrient-rich soil waiting around to be cultivated. Ancient Palest- in ancient Palestine, a, a, a harvest of 10-fold was like a bumper crop. They were like, man, we are riding high. If you got seven, eight, nine, tenfold of your harvest, and Jesus is using massive numbers here, even with 30-fold for his original audience, he's saying there's going to be exponential fruit that's going to be born in your life if there's a fertile heart. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Are you hearing with a fertile heart? Is there fruit being born in your life? Now, as we close this morning, I, I've said it the last three weeks, I'll say it again this week. These parables, they don't just want to be understood, they want to be lived. They want to be lived in our experience. And so, what is it that this parable brings us into contact with that needs to be lived? And here it is is that the call for us out of what Jesus says here in this parable is that you and I are to seek to be fruitful from a fertile heart. Seek to be fruitful from a fertile heart. See, the way that you know that you're being fruitful is that with what you understand with your mind ends up lighting a fire in your heart and it leads to the choking out of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches resulting in their fruit being born in your life. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. And push on a couple of things this morning. So we don't just understand, but maybe we have something to walk away with and go, man, God's really pressing here and I need to respond in obedience. See, following a sermon or following a lesson, uh, whether a Bible study or Sunday school lesson, a conversation, discussion, reading the scriptures, and you come across texts that, that compel you toward financial stewardship, do you, find yourselves ta- do you find yourself taking the steps to become more generous in what you give away, or do the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches begin to choke it out. See, riches are so deceitful. And here's why. Because riches, what they promise to us, they cannot provide for us. <laughs> they make a lot of promises, though. See, what they promise is security. But what they deliver is anxiety. Let me show you, because when you pursue riches and you're deceived into thinking they're going to give you security, the pursuit of them to acquire them, it creates all kinds of anxiety in your life, doesn't it? 
act. I've got to get it. I've got to get it. I've got to acquire. I've got to attain. I've got to achieve. I've got to climb. But then once you reach that level of having all these possessions and the, the riches of wealth, then, then the anxiety of keeping it kicks in. You're like, I've got to hang on to it. I've got to keep it. I've got to continue to make the right investments. I've got to continue to play the right strategies in order to hang on to what I've got. See, riches provide, promise security, but what they deliver is anxiety in your life. And they deceive us into thinking that we'll be secure if we have them. But ultimately what they provide is all kinds of insecurity about around getting them and keeping them. And so when you hear a message on financial stewardship, do you take steps to become more generous or does the anxiety of getting and keeping things begin to choke the word out of your life and it does not bear fruit? And how generous you are with your stuff and how generous you are with your money and how generous you are with your time and how generous you are with your presence at times in the lives of people. Is there a fertile heart? Are you being fruitful? Or whenever you hear, perhaps, the word of God comes to you saying, um, live on mission and be an ambassador for the kingdom and turn conversations towards the gospel. When you hear a sermon on evangelism and witness, do you find yourself taking steps to turn conversations toward the gospel? Or does the tribulation and persecution of being rejected by the people that God has sent you to share with, does it cause you to shrink back? You go, you know what? They're not going to listen. They're not going to respond. I've known them for 37 years. And I've seen how hard their heart is. I've seen how resistant they have been. But you don't heed what Jesus says here, that that the kingdom is like a man who went out to sow. And some of that seed, some of those acorns may have fallen underneath that hard surface and they will push up and crack it. Do you find yourself taking steps to turn conversations towards the gospel and towards mission and towards Jesus? When you hear a sermon on purity, do you find yourself taking steps to rid your life of, of, of contaminating influences? Do you set up barriers on your smartphone to say, you know what, I'm not going to go back there. Is there fruit being born in your life? Is, is that acorn the power, so much power, there's a, whole, there's a whole oak tree in an acorn, in a seed. Is it choking out the competing loyalties and allegiances or are they choking out the fruit in your life? The call to us is to be fruitful from a fertile heart. See, following a discussion on Christian community or a sermon on being connected with other Christians who could encourage and equip you, do you find yourself taking steps towards getting involved in a life group or getting involved in a small group or does Satan come and snatch it away with thoughts like this? They'll never understand me. They're all married. I'm single. They're all single. I'm married. They're all older than I am. They're all younger than I am. Right. They, they all work in this particular field of, of, of work and I, my job is way out here and they're never going to understand me. Does Satan come and snatch those seeds that God is casting in your soul away? Or do you say, you know what? I'm going to show up. I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to pray because I know that 
they can be an encouragement to me and I can be an encouragement to them no matter what season of life they are in or I am in. Right? Do we take steps? Is there, is there fruit being born in your life? Are you responding to the word of God? Not just understanding it and going, man, I know. I know I, know I should be in Christian community. I know I should witness. I know I should, should share. I know I should give. I know I should do all these things. And not just getting all riled up about it on, a, on an occasion and going, oh, let's go take over the world today. And then next week, there's really no lasting consistency, stability that's born out of that. Or do you hear and you go, and it begins to settle in, and then those defense attorneys start speaking. And they begin to choke it out. Be fruitful. From a fertile heart. And as we close this morning, I want to just, I want to share with you, some of you in the room are going this morning and going, man, how do I get a fertile heart? Let me, just a, a quick straw poll this morning. Anybody ever just, have you ever just tried really hard to change your heart? I have. How'd that go for you? Probably not very well. Probably, you can modify your behavior externally, but you are powerless to change your heart from being hard or from being shallow or from being divided to being fertile. How do you get a fertile heart? Here's how. This was, as, as, I, as I read this text this week, it just kind of jumped off the page at me. That in, in the parable, you and I, we are not the gardener. We are not the farmer. We are the soil. And some of us all of our lives have been trying to live as if we are the gardener. That we're going to dig out the rocks. That we're going to clip off the thorns. That we're going that, that, that to cultivate and plow up and till up that hard ground. But what you need this morning, if you're going, how do I get a fertile heart? You need a gardener to come in with his tiller. You need a gardener to come in with his shovel. And you need a gardener to come in with his shears. What Jesus says is, you are the soil. I am the soil. And if you will yield your life to him, if you will trust in him, if you will receive what he has to say, then he will take his shovel and he will begin to dig up the rocks. He will take his shears and he will begin to cut back and trim back the thorns. And he will take his tiller and he will begin to turn over that hard soil. How do you get a fertile heart? Some of you this morning, even as, we, as, as David comes and Elizabeth comes and lead us in song, as they come in, as we sing together, maybe you need to get on your knees and cry out to God for the grace that he would give you a fertile heart. And listen, if you, will, if, if you want that and if you will call out to him for it, he will delight to give it. And over the course of time, he will cut back the thorns, dig out the rocks, and turn over that fallow ground of your life so that you, you would become one by his grace who would bear 30, 60, 100-fold of fruit in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your grace and goodness. God, we know that we are incapable of producing the kind of heart change necessary to be one who has exponential fruit born in their lives. We know, Father, 
that the reason some respond to the message of the kingdom and some reject it, some embrace it, and some push back against it, is because of how we hear and hearing happens in our hearts. God, would you make our hearts fertile? There are some whose hearts are hard, some whose hearts are shallow, some whose hearts are divided. And this morning, God, may you, may you as the great gardener of our souls, may you clip the thorns. May you dig up the rocks and may you turn over that fallow and hard ground so that the seed that goes out from your word, whether it be through our own reading, whether it be through sermons that we hear in this room or on podcasts that we listen to, whether it be in conversations that we have with coworkers or neighbors or family members or friends, whether it be through discussions that take place in life groups, that, we would, that, the, that the seed would not bounce off the soil of our hearts, that it would not find shallow surfaces which ultimately are unable to endure all of the hardships and trials of life that it would not get choked out by competing loyalties and allegiances but that it would find fertile soil soil that you have been cultivating in our souls and may redeemer be a people and a place that bears much fruit